And um, I know this is everyone's favorite topic, statistics, and um, no better place than a school to, uh, to learn a little bit more. Uh, we all know that statistics can sometimes be helpful, sometimes they can be a complete hindrance, and occasionally they can be slightly humorous. Um, so for example, 50% of everyone you know is above average. We won't talk about the others. 42.7% uh, of all statistics are made up on the spot. And uh, Banksy's one, which I quite like, a recent survey of North American males found that 42% were overweight, 34% were critically obese, and 8% at the survey. However, when it comes to the UK, there is quite a stark statistic when it comes to how many kind of regular Christian worshippers there are in a church. Um, it is 6% uh, or thereabouts, a uh, number of people who are more than once a month or once a month or more um, darken the doors or lighten the doors of a church uh, in a worshipping capacity. And that might not surprise you. You might think, oh, is it as high as 6%? Um, you may think, that, that what a challenging world that we live in when we're mixing with the other 94% uh, through the week. Um, there's a great line from the James Bond film, uh, Goldfinger, when uh, they get the high-power laser out out on James Bond and uh, threaten him. And uh, uh, James says, uh, do you expect me to talk? And uh, Goldfinger says, no, Mr. Bond, we expect you to die. And uh, that is very much the view of the world when it comes to the church. Um, that is their, their, perhaps their hope, I'm not sure um, what, it's, what it's like. And yet, paradoxically, the church continues to have an immense impact uh, upon our communities. For example, who runs free holiday clubs for 2 million children? You know, who runs 50,000 youth groups? Who has twice as many workers as the government? Who? Who cares? Christians through churches. Who visits 450,000 housebound people every week? Who visits 350,000 people in hospital every week? Who runs 12,000 drop-in centers and 20,000 parent and toddler groups? Who? Who cares? The church through Christians. And uh, the percentage of worshippers at churches may be generally uh, in decline, but it delivers this huge spoonful of hope and love wherever it finds itself and wherever we find ourselves. And the key issue here is not the survival of some institution, uh, the church, what is really the issue is the eternal destiny of 66 million people and their present well-being here uh, in this country. Can we make a difference? Uh, there was a woman called Erica Chenoweth, and she did some research on uh, campaigns. Um, she looked at violent campaigns, which are generally not very effective, and she looked at non-violent campaigns, which are much more effective. And what she discovered when she looked at a whole range of nonviolent campaigns and uprisings around the world, she came up with what she called the 3.5% rule. And that is, for example, um, there's a number of ones she looked at, the singing revolution you may have heard of in Estonia in the 1980s, where hundreds and thousands of people just started gathering in public places to sing songs and hymns, national songs and hymns, uh, in their struggle for freedom from Soviet rule. Here's an article. The censorship was extremely strict in the Soviet Union, and any signs of independent and patriotic thinking were punished. However, starting in 1987, the Soviet Union, with all its weapons and power, could not control Estonia's desire for freedom anymore. They started gathering in public places, singing hymns and national songs. 
and spontaneously gathering eventually grew bigger and bigger as they joined in Tallinn and openly expressed their intention to become a free nation through their songs. The singing revolution. In 2003, there was the Rose Revolution in Georgia. And uh, the people there protested and disputed the parliamentary elections and they stormed parliament with roses. Um, a powerful, nonviolent campaign. And so in all the cases that she looked at, she discovered that when they got to at least 3.5% of a, of a population at a peak event, none of them failed. All of them had an impact. And while 3.5% is no mean feat, I think it puts the 6% in perspective when it comes to regular Christian worshipers in the church. 6% is the same as about 1 in 16. Okay, that's you and 15 other people. Okay, so one Christian believer influences 15 other people. All 66 million inhabitants of this country are influenced, are reached in some way. Who here doesn't know 15 people who you'd love to see in a worshiping community? And so when it comes to this passage in Paul, in Peter, sorry, the statistics, he doesn't give the statistics, but they will have been even smaller in the early church across Turkey and the Gentile world. And that's how he starts his letter. To God's elect, exiles, scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, and Asia, and Bithynia. He doesn't give the percentage, but this implies pretty sparse. Yeah, the Christians in the early church across this region were pretty sparse. So let's pull out some key points. Firstly, God's elect. And as you read through the Old Testament, we become aware that God's purpose from Genesis 12 onwards is, is through Abraham. That Abraham is kind of selected, if you like, and through his descendants is both blessed by God and they are to be a blessing to the nations around them, to the whole world around them. And not, any, not, not all of the Christians that Peter is writing to were Jewish. They're not all from this descent. And yet Peter draws them in and he includes them in this ongoing story of God's intention for the world by using this language of calling, that they are called, um, whatever their background, whatever our journey of faith in Jesus was or is, when we surrender, when we ask Jesus um, to lead our lives, we become part of his called people, okay, God's elect. So on this, uh, on this little diagram here on the PowerPoint, we are represented by the red dots. Okay, the red dots visualize the statistic that we started with, the 6% of people who worship in a Christian church once a month or more. Six out of every hundreds. Now, it's not many, but we've seen that it is significant. Okay, when we gather as worshipers, we remind ourselves um, that we believe a particular story about this world. We remind ourselves that we believe that this is God's world. He's designed it, he's made it, he's brought it into being, and he's given us a responsibility for it. We believe it's a broken world. You know, we believe that sin has come into the world, um, that it's within our own hearts and lives and in the whole of humankind's independent and self-centered living. We believe that Jesus' death and his resurrection makes a difference. It makes hope possible. It makes life possible. And we believe that one day everything will be transformed when Jesus returns. And so we live out our lives day by day as people 
with a distinct story in a culture that, that doesn't really know about it or doesn't even uh, believe any of that. But we are the red dots. And so when we gather on Sundays or, or in our groups, we gather to encourage one another and to strengthen one another, to be who we are, which is God's people, God's chosen people. We're not just any of those dots. We are the red dots. We are the ones that God makes distinct. And that's an incredible privilege that we find ourselves in. Secondly, not only God's elect, but we're exiles. The second term Peter uses here refers back to one of the, one of the great disasters of the Old Testament when the people of Israel lost their land. Okay, they're overpowered by Nebuchadnezzar, the Babylonian army. They're taken as refugees into Babylon, uh, Daniel and his friends and all the rest. And at first, they hope there's going to be a quick return. But the prophets are pretty clear that very few of that first generation are going to make it back. Okay, they're going to be there for a good while. And while they're there, they are to live distinct lives and they're to be a blessing upon the cities and the places where they find themselves. And we read of that in Jeremiah 29. And today, each one of us finds ourselves scattered through the week, wherever we find ourselves. You know, most of you do not spend your time all day with Christians, but we are scattered across the city. And you might be the only disciple of Jesus, the only follower of Jesus in your family, on your street, in your home, in your office, in your workplace, in your classroom, in your sports team, um, in your in your whatever, your group at uni or college, um, wherever we find ourselves, these are the places where we are to shine like stars in the universe, as uh, Paul and Timothy put it in Philippians 2, verse 14. And so it's important in our lives that we don't gray out, okay? that we don't lose our distinctiveness and become the same as the surrounding culture. And God has got a plan in placing us in our scattered contexts. And so the, 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 the phrase frontline was coined um, to help us describe those places, the places where you find yourselves during the week. And uh, that can be a whole variety of things. You can be a school child. You can be retired. Okay? Everything in between, we find ourselves scattered as God's people on our front lines, where we live or where we work or where we find ourselves. The danger is that we fail to recognize it as such. And uh, we come to church on a Sunday and uh, we screw our light bulbs in and we shine fantastically in front of one another. And they go out into the world and we unscrew our light bulb and stick it, keep it hidden in our pockets. And nobody really notices the difference. And therefore, we can make very little difference. Whereas we are in our lives to shine like stars. That's the intention. And so people see the distinctiveness. People notice us because of how we live our lives. And so we are God's people. We are called as his, his red dots, as it were, and uh, we are exiles that are scattered. So we're not to have the ghetto mentality, but we're to embrace being a scattered people as much as a gathered people, encouraging one another when we do gather to make a difference. I'm going to invite um, Eleanor and uh, Judy up just to do a short interview now and uh, hear something of their experience. Let's uh, welcome Eleanor up. Elena, even. <laughs> so, Elena, um, we thought we'd um, <laughs> see what I did there. Um, what, um, what do you spend most of your week doing? 
Uh, so right now I'm doing my A-levels. I'm in year 13. I go to the University of Birmingham School. So most of my week is just spent there learning and preparing for exams. Yeah. And I know you are a committed Christian. Um, I know that because uh, Elena is in my small group and she's a very inspiring person. Um, as you go to school, um, how do you share your Christian faith with those in, the, in your class and in your groups of study? Um, so I take as a class religious studies and actually I'm the only Christian in my class. Um, so in a class full of atheists and Muslims and with two very outspoken atheist teachers. Um, but I think being the only Christian really lends itself to having conversations. People have asked me like, okay, what is your view on this? And, um, it's sort of showing them that there's more to Christianity than like just what they learn on the spec and what they have to learn for the exams. So, yeah. Brilliant. And have you ever thought about what God thinks of you when you go to school, when you're on your way there, what, what he thinks about you in that school? Um, I have. And I think a lot of the time I struggle in my RS lessons with, um, we have to talk about very deep topics, but I think that probably that's good to strengthen my faith and also to show others like how a Christian, like what a Christian really believes. So I hope that God likes that. So, yeah, I'm sure he does. I'm sure he's very proud of you. And finally, uh, as we pray for you representing so many of our young people and our children in school, what would be the, the real one thing that you would love us to pray for, Elena? Um, I think a big problem and issue within young people, this isn't only for my school, uh, this affects many young people in the world today is mental health. So um, I have quite a few friends that struggle with severe depression. Some of them have even uh, tried to commit suicide. So there's still a lot of stigma and unawareness around the idea of mental health and still people struggling to speak out and go to someone to talk about their mental health. So I think prayer and courage to those people would really be grateful yeah brilliant thank you so much let's give elena a round of applause and do pray along the lines that she's uh, she's asking thank you and uh peter then concludes this little bit at the beginning this little introduction uh, in his letter with a reminder of the amazing work of the whole of the trinity uh, in our lives, the Father, the Spirit, and the Son, how they're absolutely intricately involved uh, with us. Let's just look at that, that passage again. If, um, if I'm next one, here we go. So, to God's elect, exiles scattered throughout, verse 2, who have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. First of all, God's foreknowledge. Your situations are known to God. You know, whatever you're walking into this week, um, whether that's something you're excited about or highly challenged about, God knows your situation. He knows your temperament. He knows who you are as you walk into that situation. He knows the strengths that you have. He knows the weaknesses that you have. All of that is known by God. He knows the challenges that you will have, something you don't even know about yet. And as you walk into them, 
You know, hear this. He is fully engaged with you as you walk into those situations. He is fully engaged in the place where you will find yourself this week. He knows where you are as his red dot, as it were, placed strategically for him. The second thing that uh, we pick up here is the sanctifying work of the Spirit. This is, this is the work of God's Spirit that, that sets us apart. You know, like the, the, whole, the old temple had utensils that were set apart for special purpose. Okay, God set us apart for special purpose, for special use. So you're not just a, a dot, you are a red dot. Okay? We are to make a difference. And the things that keep us red in life, the things that keep us shining like stars in life, are when we live a pure life, when we live an honest life, when we live with integrity, when we live um, out the fruits of the Spirit, those things that God's Spirit is producing within us, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Now, all of these things, God's, God is making us brighter red. Okay, that's the work of God's Spirit in our hearts and in our lives. And each day we, we dedicate or we consecrate ourselves and say, God, I want to be used by you um, and fill me and empower me to be all that you want me to be, dependent on God's Spirit. And the third thing that uh, Peter says is this, is that we need to be confident in our relationship with God. You know, the sprinkling of his blood, um, as he phrases it, is, is an inclusion in this covenant with God, this unconditional new covenant that you are completely accepted, you are completely forgiven, uh, you are sprinkled with the blood, um, you have that relationship uh, with God because of all that Jesus has done uh, on the cross for each one of us. That unconditional, unending acceptance and forgiveness and love. So wherever you are, God is with you and God is for you. Grace and peace be yours in abundance, he says. So you are both blessed in that situation and you are to be a blessing uh, wherever you find yourselves. And I want to finish um, just this morning with the Nimrod principle. And there's this character, Nimrod, who turns up fairly randomly in Genesis chapter 10 and verse 18. Now, let me read this. Cush was the father of Nimrod, who became a mighty warrior on the earth. He was a mighty hunter before the Lord. That is why it is said, like Nimrod, a mighty hunter before the Lord, as you have heard. And the writer here highlights two things that strike him. Firstly, Nimrod was only a hunter, but he gets his name in the Bible because he's a mighty hunter. And secondly, he did his hunting before the Lord. Somehow he saw himself as accountable to God in the way that he did what he did. And that is true for each one of us. Whatever uh, job we have, whatever role we have in society, even as a, as a simple citizen of society, you know, we have a role, whether it's paid, whether it's unpaid. And if you take your one and um, just add the phrase mighty to it and before the Lord after it, it starts to change your perspective on it. So I've put a few examples up here. John, a mighty factory manager before the Lord. Donna, a mighty carer before the Lord. I've jumped one. Pete, a mighty retail worker before the Lord. Sharon, a mighty caterer before the Lord. And what would yours be? What, is, what does your week look like? What's the most of your time going to be like? 
and that you can pull something into that. And everybody can pull something into that. And then add the phrase, before the Lord, that sense of being accountable for the way you carry out your frontline calling. We're to be mighty in the calling and we're to do it before the Lord, whatever it is. So you come up with your one and then uh, 